worshiping you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as you turn to 1 John, uh, we do have our scripture journals in. They're on the back table. So these are available to you. If you want to grab one now, that's perfectly okay. Uh, there's tons of blank space where you can uh, take notes as we go through passages each week. Um, and you can also use them in your daily devotions, quiet times, uh, whatever helps you feast more on this passage. And as a bonus, they threw in 2nd and 3rd John for free. So you get all three of them, uh, even though we're planning just to cover the first epistle of John. Um, some of you might uh, even consider, because we're going to be in this book probably into June, Lord willing, uh, you might even want to go to another level and, hey, maybe I'll memorize 1 John while we're studying 1 John and really get God's word implanted in my heart. Um, so I encourage you, like, go for that, do that. Do that with some others. Do that with, uh, there's a great app called Verses that encourages mem uh, scripture memory. Um, but that'd be another fun way to get God's word inside of you so that it can begin to show up in how you live and how you believe and how you see God and how you see yourself. Um, but they're, they're back there. And if you didn't get one now, you can get one later. Um, today we jump into verse 5 of chapter 1. John begins this letter, which reads more like a sermon than a typical New Testament letter where it's grace and peace to you, greetings to my friends. Uh, John is writing really this poetic sermon and he's begun with a bold declaration who, of who Jesus is, the word of life, the eternal life of God, uh, revealed and proclaimed to the original disciples and apostles, and now being proclaimed to these believers that were living in what's modern-day Turkey, around the city of Ephesus at the time. And eventually to all of us, that God has made himself known and his life known through Jesus so we could experience this fellowship with him, that we could be brought into this community with him and with each other so that we could experience this incredible joy. And I was reminded this week by someone that this is so essential to who we are as a church that it's our vision, that we exist, we say, at the crossing so that all people would enjoy Christ always. Obviously, we wanted to get to all people, no matter who they are in our city, in our parish, but to the ends of the earth, all people groups, and that they would enjoy Christ, find their ultimate joy in Christ, have a joy rooted in Christ that it bubbles up out of us, like we can't keep it in. It's just oozing out of our pores, and it's, it's rooted in Christ so that even the temporary things that we enjoy become worship unto Christ, because we see the temporary good things as gifts to us of the grace of Christ and that we can enjoy it always so there's no circumstance that we're going to go through that can take the joy of Christ from us like no matter what we face no matter what we endure no matter how we may suffer or struggle no matter what trials we will go through in life there is this deep abiding joy that nothing can take away we don't want to be a bunch of super religious people that can pass a bunch of theological tests, but we're miserable. We don't want to be a bunch of people who are serving in our city, doing all kinds of good things for other people, but we're miserable. We want to be able to do all of those things and just be exuberant, joyful, overflowing, because it's, it's Christ. We're, all that we're doing is flowing from the life of Christ in us. Not us trying to earn something, keep something, or be something. And so this joy is really essential to who we are. And, and um, 
And it wasn't true of everyone who had been in this church that John was writing to. There had been some who weren't telling the truth about their fellowship and relationship with Christ, and John wants to expose that to those who remained, but also he wants to give them some assurance to those who remained in the church. And so hopefully what we'll see today is that true Christians walk with God in the light while enjoying Jesus' cleansing us from sin. So we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 7. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The context uh, of this letter, if you were here last week or if you listened to the sermon recording, was a church going through some confusing times. There were those among them who had decided to go into a different direction theologically and thus practically in their attitudes and behaviors. They would be in a different place. That's how it works. What you believe drives what you do. And so if you change your beliefs, your theology, then you're going to change how you live. And so as this group of people de-emphasized the bodily incarnation of Jesus, not only did it cause them to adopt a belief system that would be more in line with the Antichrist, as we'll see later in chapter 2, but they also began to change their view of things like sin and even love. Uh, Karen Jobes in her helpful commentary on 1 John makes the claim that these are the three big themes of 1 John. Christology, who Christ is, and then sin and love. And we see all three in our passage today. These that were walking away left behind a confused community wondering about those that left and wondering about their own faith, their own claim to be a follower of Jesus. And do we really have this fellowship with God and his son Jesus? And John's writing to mainly assure them what you have is real. Take it from me, John says. I heard him. I saw him. I touched him. It's all real. You can believe it. But it's also true that some who claim to have this don't really have this. And this is part of what makes Christianity hard today. Being a professing Christian doesn't mean you're actually a Christian. Now, you do have to profess it. You do have to claim to be a Christian, to be a Christian, for sure. But just because you claim to be a follower of Jesus doesn't mean you're actually a follower of Jesus. Especially in a culture like ours where cultural Christianity, congregational Christianity, is as present and as real as convictional Christianity. Cultural Christianity, I'm a Christian because it's part of my culture, it's part of my community. On a large scale, my family on a small scale is what my parents believed, and so I believe it. So my family believes, so I believe. My friends believe, so I believe. And it's true of many people in Washtenaw Parish, but none of that means you're an actual Christian. You're just going along with the culture, the, the water that you swam in. Congregational Christianity, much like cultural, but this would be more, more specific to people who would be baptized into a local church, uh, raised in that local church, and, and taught that because you're part of this congregation upon your baptism, upon your birth, then you're a Christian, and now we're going to teach you what it means to be a Christian, so you go through classes and catechisms and so forth in the hopes that you'll own this faith. But the whole time, you're, you're one of us. You're a Christian because you were birthed into this congregation. And the convictional Christianity is, I'm a Christian because it is the conviction of my heart and life. 
I own this. Yes, I've been influenced and taught by my parents. That's great. My faith community, my friends. But at some point, I'm not just doing this because it was the water I was swimming in. At some point, by the grace of God, my, this faith became my faith. And I have to own this relationship with God. And I have confidence when I stand before him one day by myself with no one else. Stand before God one day. That I, won't, I will willingly, lovingly fall down before King Jesus and say, yes, you are my king. I wholeheartedly worship you because you've changed my life. Statistically, this has been studied a lot over the last bunch of years. Right now, our nation is basically thirds. A third of people who profess to be Christians are cultural Christians. A third are congregational Christians. And a third are convictional Christians. A lot's been written over the last 20 years about the rise of the nuns, those who claim no faith in Christ, no affiliation with the church. But interestingly, the, the rise in those numbers haven't changed the number of convictional Christians. It's still a third. It's always been a third. Which it means it's not growing either. But it's, those numbers are taken from congregational and, and cultural Christians. So people who don't have true faith are just no longer pretending to have faith. Like, I don't really believe this. Now, what makes it hard for us also is it's not like there's a physical indicator that tells you what you are. Like you don't get a little light going off on your head. You don't get uh, a new whatever, whatever physical indicator you want to come up with. It's all spiritual. It's on the inside of us. And truly, no one even knows except for that individual and God. And there's even a chance you're self-deceived, as we'll see today. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 13 about a field of wheat growing up with weeds. And he says, uh, the kingdom of heaven, verse 24 of Matthew 13, may you be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while people were sleeping, his enemy came, sowed weeds among the wheat and left. When the plants sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also appeared. The landowner's servants came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he told them. So do you want us to go and pull them up? The servants asked him. No, he said. When you pull up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and tie them into bundles to burn them, but collect the wheat in my barn. Now, the interesting thing about that parable, the word translated as weeds was referring to a plant called the darnel weed, which as it begins to grow among the wheat, they actually look identical. You don't really know which one's a weed and which one is wheat, until they sprout and the fruit shows up. And, and Jesus is describing the kingdom of heaven as it exists right now in the world, where you have both growing up together. You have the wheat and the weeds right amongst each other. And the job, he says, is not for us now to do the sorting. There's a day coming when that will happen. The job for us now is to proclaim, if you go earlier, Matthew 13, proclaim the gospel. Let the word of God be proclaimed so that it will fall on the hearts of people and hopefully their heart will be fertile to receive the word and produce fruit in life. But for now, we're not, our job is not to be salvation investigators and to go around declaring who the real Christians are and who they aren't. We do deal with false teachings like Titus 1.9 tells us as a church, but we proclaim the gospel and call on people to examine yourselves. It's a really hard job of a pastor. Like Tim, Tim Keller put it like this, I want to disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. I don't, if you're comfortable in all of this, I don't want to just make you more comfortable. And if you're disturbed, I certainly don't, don't want to make you more disturbed. 
So I, I'm praying, we're praying as we walk through 1 John for the Spirit to do this work among us that only He can do. 1 John is a book that helps us do that, and it's assuring those who remained in the church while also revealing what's wrong with the beliefs of those who have left. And he begins in verse 5 with this bold declaration about the nature of God. Notice he says it comes from Jesus himself. This is the message we have heard from him, Jesus, and declare to you, God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. The imagery of God as light can be found throughout the Bible, this duality of light and darkness as good and as evil. And it's not unique even to Christianity. It's pretty much universal among all cultures. On the first day of creation, God declared, let there be light, and light was made separate from darkness in Genesis 1. The sun, the moon, the stars, as you know, weren't created until day four. So the very nature of this light was found in God himself. It wasn't from a created uh, entity, a planet, a star. And that's what we find in the description of heaven, the eternal state. Revelation 22.5, night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. And this idea of God as light is found throughout the Bible. Just a few examples in the Psalm, Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom should I dread? Psalm 36, 9. For the wellspring of life is with you. By means of your light, we see light. Think about that. Because you are light, we can actually see other light. He's the original source of light. And the prophets, an example, Micah 7, 8, do not rejoice over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will stand up. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. And then bringing this into the New Testament, very prominent in John's gospel, the same writer of 1 John. John 1, <clears throat> 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. See the connection between light and life. Anybody know photosynthesis? Like this part of our creation. Ask Immigrate. She'll give you a whole rundown before you leave today. She's like an expert now. Uh, verse going on, verse 5. That light that gives life shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness does not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. I'm talking about John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify about this light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And then several chapters later, Jesus himself says, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So God as light, as opposed to darkness, is essential to the very nature of who God is. But this isn't just a statement about the physical reality uh, of God or the essence of God. It's, it's not like all photons of light have a divine nature to them. It has to do with the character and nature of God and this connection between Light as holy, good, seen, visible, true, and darkness as evil, wicked, hidden, unseen, shadowy. Maybe most clearly seen in John's gospel, again, Jesus speaking these words to uh, in his famous encounter with Nicodemus in John 3. This is the judgment, he tells Nicodemus. 
The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Like, isn't this the very nature of sin going back to the garden? When our parents rebelled and ate, immediately realized they were naked and ashamed. And when God showed up, where are you? They, what did they want to do? They wanted to hide and clothe themselves. It's the heart of every single human being to sin out of our sinful heart and then run and hide in, in shame. We, every person in this room does this. Every person in this room does this. You don't have to teach your kids to do this. They're just born knowing how to do it. And so this light and dark and the nature of God have to do with doing what is right and good and holy and just and everything that flows from the character and nature of God in whom there's not an ounce of darkness, not one speck of sin or hint of evil or a place to even hide, no even shadow. Like in the eternal state, we're going to be enveloped in light. There won't even be a shadow, which is mind-blowing if you think about it. How is that even possible? We're going to be completely surrounded by light. And so if you're a person who claims to have fellowship and an intimate relationship with this God and yet walk in darkness, John would say, verse 6, that you are a liar and not practicing the truth. Well, tell us how you really feel, John. Like, what a bold statement. Bold words. Walk in darkness. Now, very often when you see the word walk in the New Testament, it's not describing the physical act of walking, but it's a metaphor for how you live, a lifestyle. It's, a, it's the way it's written in the original language in the New Testament. It's a habit, habitual. It's the nature of who you are. So what we're not talking about here is a version of Christian perfectionism where you don't sin. That's what it means to walk in the light, not walk in darkness. In fact, the very next few verses are going to deal with those who say they have no sin. No, a genuine real Christian is not someone who doesn't sin or achieves a state of moral perfection but actually someone who acknowledges they still sin and run to Jesus for cleansing. That's part of enjoying this fellowship. But there is a degree of sin, a habit, a lifestyle of sin that would in fact reveal that even though you claim I have fellowship with him, your habit or lifestyle in fact betrays you and turns your testimony into a lie, someone who's not telling the truth, John would say. Like, no one wants to be told they're a liar. Isn't that like one of the worst accusations, especially if you believe you're telling the truth? You're not trying to be deceitful? This person is saying, I have fellowship with the God of light, and John, the apostle, says, you're lying. You're actually walking in darkness. This is a version of self-deception, very, very strong self-deception, much what, like what Jesus referred to in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and do many, many miracles in your name? And I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. A self-deception that lasts until the final judgment and even be accompanied by prophecy and exorcisms and miracles. Like, it's mind-blowing to think that that's possible. But it will. This is Jesus himself in his incarnational ministry saying this. So you might be wondering, okay, so how much of a habit can sin be and I still be a genuine believer? Like, 
How much sin can I get away with and my testimony of fellowship with God be true? Like, where's the line? Well, if you, as we'll continue to walk through 1 John, uh, clues can be found about what walking in darkness looks like. So 1 John 2, 8 through 11, he'll, he'll say, Yet I'm writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light. There's no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in darkness, walks in the light, doesn't even know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So someone who's walking in darkness is someone who's characterized as not loving his brother and sister but actually, in fact, hates them. A few uh, verses later, another example First John 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everyone, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of one's possessions, is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away. But the one who does the will of God remains forever, which is an echo of him saying earlier that the darkness is passing away, the world is passing away, the true light, the light that remains, eternal light, eternal life is shining and remains forever. And so there's a degree to which our love of the world is a reflection of the fact we are walking in darkness and not walking in the light. So what is the direction of your life? What is the habits of your life? What is the way you would characterize your life? What is the bent of your life? Again, we're not talking about sinless perfectionism. But are you, do you have a life that's spent more in the hiding and the shadows of trying to hide sin and cover up sin? Or is your relationship with sin, yes, here are the ways that I sin. Here are the ways that I confess my sins. Here are the ways that I'm repenting of sin. Here are the ways that I hate sin. A life spent enough in the light, uh, is, is your life a life spent enough in the light to make everyone think you're okay, but there's a significant amount of energy spent on hiding significant parts of who you are from others. Like if all of our deeds were brought into the light, all of our watch histories on our streaming services, the search histories of our browsers, not the safe ones that we show everyone, but the private ones that we don't show everyone. If all the places we allow our minds and hearts to go were exposed, would we find sinless perfection? No, not among anyone. But would we find a ton of energy spent trying to hide and cover because we're afraid to be in the light? This is a really hard question. And, and I, again, I don't want to disturb the disturbed or comfort the comforted. I want to disturb the comforted and comfort the disturbed. And so I pray the Spirit of Christ would do that. But for those who are apathetic and comfortable, I pray the Spirit of God would shake the tree of your soul this morning. If you're asking the question, where's the line so you can enjoy sin more, that's like a, a red flag. That's a warning sign to you. My heart's not in the right place. That's a level of comfort that needs to be disturbed. But if you're asking the question because you're terrified, you've crossed that line, it's the core essence of who you are, I don't want to be that person. Like in the core being of who I am, I love Jesus and I want to be one with him and enjoy him and be free from the sins that are, that are besetting on me, the sins that are chasing me. Then there is comfort and hope in this passage. Verse 7. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his Son cleanses us from all sin. 
Another way of knowing if you're really walking in the light and enjoying or able to enjoy fellowship with God and each other and not lying about your relationship with God, but walking in darkness and, and walking in darkness is our relationship with the blood of Jesus, which cleanses us from all sin. I don't want to step too much on the next passage, verses 8 and 9, but one of the characteristics of these false Christians who walked in darkness and were self-deceived, their relationship with God uh, was their claim, as we'll see in verses 8 and 9, that they don't sin, which seems crazy. But that's where they had gotten to that point. And therefore, because they don't sin, they don't need to confess their sins and they don't need to experience the joy of repentance and the cleansing of Jesus and his blood sacrifice for their sins. There are some who claim to be Christians who have also destroyed their theology by completely dismissing the necessity of the physical, bodily, bloody sacrifice of Jesus for the sins of his people. It's gross, it's archaic, it's barbaric. Let's remove the cross from our churches and our songs. Let's remove the images of blood and sacrifice from our version of Christianity. Let's get others to believe it's not even necessary. God is love. He's given us a book of commands. He just wants us to, to love and follow his way of life to enjoy a good life. That's what life's about, right? That's what God has for us. And if we do that, we'll have this great community that's really giving and loving toward each other. So why do we even need to talk about Jesus and his sacrificial death? Can we have a version of Christianity without it? Seems like it. Some are doing it today. I don't know if that's anyone here. If it is, you know, let's talk. But it's part of our motivation to share in communion every week is that we need this weekly visual and physical reminder that, uh, that, that engages all of our senses that we are so sinful Jesus had to die. That is a reality. And I pray and hope we are a people where the reality of the depth of our sinfulness is never far from our thoughts. Not that we're paralyzed in despair or shame so we can't even function, but we're never a people who would entertain the thought that we're not sinful. And Jesus didn't have to die for our sins. And here's the thing. I, I doubt anyone here would come close to saying that. If everyone could be honest and have like a little survey, anonymous survey, yes, of course I know I'm sinful. But then, how could any of us be someone who thinks they're in fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness? Like, how does that happen if I'm claiming to be a Christian, I'm affirming I'm even a sinner, yet this person can also be someone who says, I don't even sin? And one way I think it happens, and I've been doing a lot of thinking on this, is while we affirm we are sinners, we can functionally live like someone who doesn't really believe that because we're no longer practicing what we're going to see in verses 8 and 9. Confession of our sins. Even in a church that shares communion each week, this can be a place where we're just going through the motions. And we don't even take time to stop and consider the sins that we've committed today right now, this week, that have been an offense to God, that have been an affront to His holiness, that have caused Him to grieve, that have brought a barrier between us and Him. We just show up and sing some songs and listen to someone talk and eat some delicious bread and drink some mediocre grape juice and go about our life. 
be abandoned more? Like he's done it all for us to be free. And this motivates our obedience because we love him, because we see his incredible love for us through the cross. Yes, we are so sinful. He had to die. Yes, we are so loved. He was glad to die. Keller says, the blood of Christ destroys the attractive power of sin over you. You look at it and say, look, here's Jesus Christ writhing in the dust, sweating blood in the garden, dying on the cross. The spear, the thorns, the wormwood, the gall, all for us. And in spite of it all, he did it all for us. So what can we do for him? To be true to us, he experienced all of that. To be true to him, what are we going to do? The blood of Christ keeps you in the light of keep, by keeping us obedient. Your incentive for obedience is not a fear that you're going to lose his love, not at all. Your incentive for obedience is, I have an unlosable love that was put on me at an incredible cost. How can I trample on that? Confession of sin helps keep this reality always before us. But wait, you might say, if all I think about are my sins, why not I just collapse into a heap of shame and sorrow and despair and never get anywhere? Am I not just supposed to feel God's love and now all I feel is I feel bad about myself and how sinful I am? Well, again, the remedy for that is, guess what? Jesus on the cross. That's the remedy for that as well. The remedy for our hard-heartedness towards sin is to see what it cost our Savior to die on the cross for our sins. And the remedy for sin overwhelming us is to see how much love he has for us and that he was willing to pay that price on the cross. Romans 5.8, God proves his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is love. It's not loving as a parent to not deal with the sinful defiance and rebellion of your kids. You're not a great parent if you just pretend like your kids don't sin. In age-appropriate ways, we do the hard work of discipline to deal with the sinfulness of our kids so they can thrive and enjoy and experience the best of life and not the consequences of the foolish choices that kids make. And it's not loving of God to not deal with our sins. It is, in fact, incredibly loving that he says, this is the worst thing about you and I'm going to provide the remedy because you can't. God is not loving if he doesn't deal with our sins. He is in fact his love that absorbs the cost of our sins himself. And so if you tend to shrug your shoulders at your sins, you tend to just live a life where sin no longer really affects you. You're not really even feeling conviction over sin anymore. It's not because you're sinless. Not. Today, confess your sins and run to Jesus on the cross and see what price he had to pay for your sinfulness. And love him and be loved by him once again. Or maybe, for some, the first time. And if you tend to be overwhelmed by your sins, you're constantly worried how sinful you are, you feel crushed by the weight of your sinfulness, the remedy is run to Jesus on the cross and see his love for you and that he gladly took your place and paid the price for your sins. This is how we enjoy fellowship with the Father and the Son. This is how we are a people in the light. 
we're open and honest about our sins. We're running to Jesus and his sacrifice continually for cleansing and restoration. Like somebody who finds their justification in their works, someone who's just really killing it. Look how great I am. Look at the job that I'm doing. They're justifying themselves through their works, their achievements, their job, whatever. They don't want their sins exposed. Oh, no. Because then I'm not doing a good job of saving myself. They're trusting in themselves for their justification. But someone trusting in Jesus and his work, you don't mind your sins being exposed. I'll be the first one to tell you how sinful I am and how much I need to run to Jesus constantly. As we move into this time to share in this meal together, I think a few moments to consider these truths in our hearts would be appropriate. See the love of Jesus. The nails did not keep Jesus on the cross. The Roman guard did not keep Jesus on the cross. His love kept him on the cross until the price was paid. And that love is for you, us, wretched, sinful humanity. And just as he told the woman caught in adultery, I forgive you, go and sin no more. So he's telling that every day, go and sin no more. Don't live in the bondage of sin. So listen to how the Spirit's been speaking. Spend some time in confession, repentance. And when you're ready, uh, we invite all baptized, repentant believers to come and share in this meal, to grab the bread and the cup. Return to your seats and we'll share in this meal together. If you're not really in a place this morning where you want to confess and repent of your sins, just don't partake. It's okay. It's okay to partake if you're ready. It's okay not to partake. But spend some time now and uh, listen to the Spirit of God and how He's speaking. And come when you're ready.